0: Alert Medic One response, box area 19-1. You're listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner.
1: Welcome back to the Alert Medic One podcast. This is Mustafa Sadiq. It has been a minute since we have recorded. Uh, I have Doctor David Wittberg with me and uh, Ken Sander. We are excited to get back at it. How are you guys doing? Good to be back. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, COVID definitely threw a wrench into a lot of our plans. We had we had a lot of cool things working. We had a lot of different uh, members of the team working on different projects um but i think we're 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 finally getting ready to uh get started so today's episode is going to be you know just a kind of, kind of conversation of what our plans are what we've experienced so far uh we found ourselves in three very different positions as this pandemic started um and i uh, just wanted to get your guys' viewpoints on uh you know how you guys are how you guys coped with you know everything that happened and how we move forward so yeah yeah, I um, I didn't know if you guys had any talking points real quick before we uh, moved on to the the discussion points we had for today.
0: No, I I mean I think uh, the the only thing I would say before we start is uh, full disclosure. Nothing we say represents any agency that we represent, whether or not we've disclosed it on this podcast or not. <laughs>
2: Really, really interesting times. I, I don't know why I feel like I, I lived through something like the invention of penicillin, um, and, and you know the birth of modern medicine all over again. Um, first time in my career that I felt like we were figuring out things on the fly. Uh, tons of foam out there uh, that was uh, really a primary source for most of my learning. So, kudos to all the you know the websites that I used on the day to data. Uh, help me learn and, and keep up and, and digest information that just started flying in at uh, a crazy pace. But, um, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm in my 40s. Uh, I finished my fellowship training in 2008 um, and I, I've been in medicine. I, I, I started uh, practicing medicine when I graduated med school in 2001. So approaching 20 years, this was the first time that I really felt like, wow, um, this is new. Uh, We don't really know what we're doing, and we're going to figure it out. And, uh, you know, I know there's been a lot of podcasts and shared learning about the evolution of care for COVID, but it was, uh, you know, fascinating, a privilege, and it really felt like I was in a time machine, if you will, uh, kind of living through the learning and and how to do do it and how to do it better and, and get it right. And I'm not sure we're there yet, um, but, but it's a fascinating time in my career. Um, I think like most of you, extremely stressful at the beginning uh, when we were in a lot of collaborative training. The ICU group that I work with was with the ED group, was with the anesthesia group in our simulation center. And we were learning how to don and dock and, and we, we kind of safety officers to each other and eventually intubate. And is it under a sheet? Is it in a box? Is it hanging upside down? And just sharing information and, you know, while it was exciting, it was nerve-wracking. And then, you know, when we got into taking care of patients, um, you know, it, I, it felt like I've never been in the military. I, I imagine it must have felt like, you know, a little bit like when them folks go to boot camp and, and they train up and then they wait for the green light and they get deployed and then they jump out of the airplane into the into the battlefield. Uh, totally cliche, but man, that's the way it felt. And And I honestly, I've never felt that way in my career before. There's was only one thing that came slightly close, and that was when I came uh, from Syracuse, where I went to med school, down to Baltimore for residency. Really not much HIV or AIDS up in Syracuse. And I remember my first rotation uh, at the University of Maryland, where I trained. I was on the med ID team, and it was a huge ward, maybe 40, 50 beds full of uh, patients with HIV and AIDS. And I had never, never uh, treated, touched, interacted with a patient with AIDS up in Syracuse. and there was this fear, you know, the fear of the unknown. I, I knew what I had to do, uh, much like this epidemic. I knew how I had to put on my PPE. I knew what I had to do to keep myself safe. I had a basic construct of how to take care of these patients. But, you know, I remember back then still that fear uh, of, of kind of um, my, my kind of preconceived notions of, of, of what caring for patients with this infectious disease would be all, like, uh, all about, and it kind of happened again.
0: Yeah. And, you know, you, you bring up a couple of really interesting points. Um, but one in particular that I, I, I want to touch on is it really has been a very unusual experience where we really have felt like we're dealing with something that we don't understand at all because we didn't. And to a large extent, we still don't. Um, you know, I've been myself in EMS uh, about 15 years, so not quite as long as, you know, you've been around but still it's it was very surreal to be dealing with something that we just didn't really get and and one thing that you, you kind of touched on that i want to bring up is the whole ppe thing and learning how to don and doff pp when we go through paramedic school or emt school or uh, an academy or whatever it is you talk about it you know i get fit tested every year i can't tell you i doubt i ever wore an n95 before you know may um excuse me um Uh, March of this year, you know, like it just, it wasn't something you really did. I I don't, I don't think I've ever worn a gown ever, even though I should, you know, and that's one of my takeaway points. Um, and I'm, I'm putting the cart before the horse here a little bit. One thing I've really learned from this is how much we should have been utilizing this PPE that didn't really happen in, in real life, you know? Um, so i just think for everybody it's been such a learning experience about you know how and when to use ppe what's using it properly um and, and seeing the evolution of the ppe guidelines have has been really fascinating to me um you know it started off if you asked me a year ago you know how how long you should wear an n95 you know i would have told you oh you know one patient encounter you know go in the room put it, you know you have it on it, you come out you throw it away now it's like well, you know, maybe all day, maybe a week. You know, I don't know. It's it's a little nebulous depending on who you talk to. So it's it's been a really fascinating, um, kind of encounter. Uh, and I I guess uh, whatever we've been doing as a, a nation, as healthcare professionals in general, must have been at least okay because we di- we certainly had a significant number of healthcare workers contract the disease but it wasn't in droves. We didn't have like.
1: And can you cut out, you cut out there a little bit, but I think what you were uh, getting at was, uh, you know, nationally we didn't have, you know, that uh, you know, the onslaught of healthcare uh, worker death that we, you know, honestly, a lot of us thought we were going to see. Um, It was definitely grim uh, going into, you know, January, February and uh, uh, you know, the position that I was in not, not being the field guy, right? So being the guy in the street, you know, providing, you know, the street medicine, as I used to call it, um, but being on the emergency management uh, side of things and the, um, you know, the role that I, I you know, had the privilege to serve and still uh, work in, it was uh, very, very interesting, very scary to be in that position because uh, um, the... Um, yeah, I mean, information was moving fast. It was moving quick. Um, so while we were getting, you know, good information out, it appeared that there, a, there, as we were getting uh, information out, there was a rising tide of anti-intellectualism that was matching us, right? And um, to the point where you know, one of the most frustrating things for me was um, uh, people saying that, you know, public health and government officials were, uh, you know, malintentioned, right? Wanted to, uh, you know, they, we wanted to cause harm. And, you know, I, to, to a point I should, you know, I didn't really personalize it, but um, that kind of sucks when, you know, when you think about who's actually doing the work in, you know, medicine and public health and man- in public, in emergency management, it's just other people too, right? And yeah, that was, you know, kind of leading to, you know, as we evolved, as we, you know, shifted gears, uh, we fine-tuned our response. But at the same time, that definitely took a, uh, you know, I'm sure for you guys too, but myself, like, it definitely took a, a toll on my mental health.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I mean, you bring up three points there. The second point we could probably talk about all day with the anti-intellectualism and, and the the political aspect of all of this, but I know that's not we're here to talk about the first thing you said that I do want to touch on is you, you mentioned getting good information out. I think one of the really big learning points that we got from this is that when we have a situation like this, we really don't know what good information is because we get what we thought was good information out. And then a week, a month later, Oh, well, everything's changed. It's contact, it's airborne, it's droplet. You need an N95. A surgical mask is okay. Well, it's only a problem if they have a cough and a fever. Well, no, you know, uh, non-symptomatic uh, patients, asymptomatic patients can transmit. You know, it's just everything has been so all over the board. It's really, it's been from a purely intellectual aspect. It's been fascinating to watch. It's unfortunate, obviously, there have been so many deaths and serious illnesses, Um but it's been, it's definitely been a, a, a bizarre ride.
2: Yeah, one of the things that I, I jotted down on my kind of top five lessons learned takeaways was um, distrust with uh, people that are putting out information. You know, I was in a very unique position in the hospital and out of the hospital, uh, both as a director of an ICU and then a jurisdictional medical director with quickly synthesizing all this information that was coming into me. And I was gleaning from the places that I learned, the state, Foam peers, journals, uh, and, and and synthesizing it and disseminating it uh, for folks that I work with to keep them safe. And uh, it changed, changed a lot, particularly over the first few weeks, as you mentioned, and, and with that came distrust. I remember uh, a lot of the nurses that I worked with, uh, nurse leadership, nurse educators that we would kind of um, uh, hand information to, to to train the nurses. Um you know, we, we had nurses that were training one way because they heard something slightly different. Uh, physicians were training another way. Um, at the end of the day, some of the physicians, we, we put out guides and policies about how to treat patients with COVID and it didn't fully align with the way that nurses were protecting themselves and, and wanted to treat patients. And and there was, man, it was palpable, the, uh, the, the angst. And then, you know, the, the word is distrust uh, as we revised um, we, we had a list of our kind of aerosol generated procedures, and it grew over time uh, as we recognized more things that were aerosol generating. And because we didn't initially have one or two things on our list of fifteen, and added them later on, uh, and because we recommended N95 use for before we had recommended regular mask use, um, people said, "Oh my God, why didn't you recommend that?" You know, at the first go around, and and how can we trust the information that's coming out now? And um, you know, and then you start questioning yourself, and and you know, our, our, how effective you are at, at trying to do the right thing and synthesize the information that you're trying to turn around to the people that you work with and um, very stressful, very stressful. But, you know, I think we eventually, um, you know, it's like turbulence at 10,000 feet. We kind of came down a few thousand feet, cooler heads prevailed, more information came in and then you know, the turbulence abated, the plane leveled off and, and we all kind of got on the same page. But distrust. Uh, between the different disciplines, um, both inside and outside of the hospital initially, was uh, a big deal.
0: And, you know, I I think that, you know, coupled with what Moose mentioned about mental health, maybe this is a good segue into that discussion, there is such a burnout factor to this for people in medicine, because not only are you dealing with the lockdown at home and everything like that, but then you're dealing with it constantly at work. And um, then you got to worry about stuff like, you know, am I going to bring this home? You know, like for, for me, I'm a, I'm a paramedic. I'm dealing with sick people all day. My wife's a nurse. She got drafted into the COVID unit. So now we're both around this constantly. We've got a two-year-old at home who spends half his time with his elderly grandparents. It really felt like a question of when, not if one of us would catch this, bring it home and get our whole family sick and you know kill the grandparents or you know leave the the two-year-old with a lifelong lung issue or you know it, it's just it very very stressful um and then it, it gets to a point though after nine months where almost an apathy kind of sets in and you're just like whatever you know <laughs> oh yeah, I, guess, it, I guess i guess i should wear so my goggles that, you know
2: it's so funny that you bring those two things up because those are two of the things that were on my list it's uh, the, the extreme difficulty, almost impossibility, of disconnecting from this when we're clinically off. And so I think under normal operating procedures, pre-COVID, uh, you're supervising EMS in the street, I'm, I'm in the hospital, we come home, uh, we, we go outside, we play with our kids, we barbecue, there, there's some sense of normalcy. There isn't the 24 hour you know, CNN death toll on the right side of the screen there isn't the constant, like my neighbors would walk, I'd be off for a day and just trying to reset. My neighbors would walk up and be like, so, Hey, uh, you know, what's going on? Is this real? Like, what are you seeing? You know? And, and they'd want information or uh, you know, you'd, you'd, I'd walk my kids, my kids' elementary schools right down the block from where we live. And I'd walk them down to the fields to kick the soccer ball around. And we'd run to other parents and teachers. And they'd be like, Oh, when are we going back to school? And what do you think? Oh, is this real? I mean, is it as bad as everybody says it is? And there was just this, unbelievable inability to escape the clinical realm outside of our workplaces, yes. be it as, as MS providers or in-hospital clinicians that, you know, again, you draw the Venn diagram with the big circle in the middle, mental health issues in healthcare and healthcare, and the inability to disconnect, and uh, the stress of contracting the disease, like you said, and the stress of keeping your family healthy, and the stress of knowing you have to go into work to continue to work. provide for your family in these stressful situations um it was just impossible to disconnect and um that that made it very very difficult uh to go back um and and do clinical work day in and day out um without uh, i think most people that i work with experiencing some degree of burnout and then like you said that burnout leads to some degree of over time your body can your brain and your body can only take so much and there is this apathy but the, you know, that apathy isn't the best word, but for me, it bore out as, and I observed some degree of complacency, not some degree, complacency. If attention to detail, putting on the PPE meticulously, Mm -hmm. uh, it's been around for months. I'm good so far. You know, uh, I'm going to take my mask off for a little while and sip my coffee while I'm rounding or you know, when I'm outside the hospital doing my uh, pre-hospital care report. And so, yeah, the mental health issues, the inability to escape, and then over time the complacency uh, has also been very challenging.
0: Yeah.
1: I think it's been uh, different flavors of that complacency across the board, whether it's in medicine and, you know, laxing with PPE, or um, you see around the public, you know, as certain things open up, and, uh, you know, people are becoming more and more uh, complacent. Um, yeah, it's, it, so it's interesting you guys brought up the fact that you, you know, for you all being in the field, you guys were really afraid of bringing it home. I, uh, I felt, and I don't know if it's imposter syndrome or, you know, survivorship, I don't know what it's called, but I felt like I was, um, uh, you know, uh, almost uh, a trader of some sort because I wasn't in the field, right? I felt that I had a duty to be, you know, as a clinician that I, you know, I prided myself first and foremost as a clinician. I felt that I needed to be in the field, but instead I was writing, writing guidance, doing information, uh, you know, dissemination uh, behind a desk. Um, and that, uh, that led me to uh, thinking, damn, I better do my job really well. If these guys that, you know, my friends and family are in the field doing, you know, real clinical work, uh, so I would, you know, pour over every random journal or every little tidbit of information, uh, which led to uh, absolute exhaustion. Um, the what was frustrating for me was my normal routes of um, uh, kind of improving my mental health, like going to the gym. Like I had started kickboxing before COVID. Uh, those gyms closed, and I was forced to come home. And I quickly found out that, uh, you know, the social media circle didn't stop, right? I was constantly finding myself on social media, on, you know, Instagram, on Facebook. Um, and uh, I, it actually led me to the point where I, I deleted my social media. I deleted Facebook and Instagram because I, it, I was, it was that 24-hour hour cycle uh, that I could not shut down. Uh, so, I sh- you know, I, I deleted those accounts, which uh, was a lot harder than I thought it would be uh, and I'm still finding ramifications of that. Um, that's a side conversation, how much social media intervenes into your life and inter, you know, is interwoven and you don't realize it until you don't have it anymore. Um, but yeah, so now I feel like, you know, kind of like you guys said, we've, uh, come to this a little bit of a steady state, um, as we go into flu season, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, I'm really glad we got to have this conversation. We are having this conversation because I wanted to hear your guys' side, you know, things, especially from, you know, a street paramedic level and uh, from a physician.
0: Yeah. And, I mean, there are a lot of frustrations with it. Um, you know, even things as simple as, you know, you go back to March, um, you know, everywhere you went, there were signs, healthcare providers are heroes, you know, thank you, nurses. Thank you, doctors. Thank you, fire fighters. Thank you, police, everything like that. Now it's like, you know, we're all part of some kind of conspiracy trying to, you know, make up this fake disease to keep people away when I can, you know, tell you a dozen young people I had in cardiac arrest over the last nine months, probably more than that, who there's no real re- You know, I don't know that they have COVID, but um, they didn't die for no reason, you know, and it, it's just, frustrating. One, one of the, uh,
2: going back to Moose, what you are saying, uh, you were talking about kind of like a survivorship guilt. Uh, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that speaks to, you know, you being in the right field. I um, kind of hesitate to draw the analogy to 9-11, but, you know, it's interesting that 9-11 kind of came and went right in the middle of all this. And, and I think about the um, way an MCI will kind of suck people into responding on the days off and um, you know, coming in uh, to help, and the and the firefighters that were off. That you know, the one firefighter that jumped on his motorcycle and drove towards the World Trade Center. Um, you know, I had, I had I had a similar experience. I had a bunch of PAs that used to work in my critical care group that went out to work in the community. one wanted a dermatologist. One for an urgent care center. That really, when this started to heat up, they called and they said the same thing. They, they felt this this this, this need. To be in the hospital, like they they were, in essence, wasting their time in the, in their you know their their dermatology practice or their urgent care center, and they knew they had skills that could be of benefit to a lot of people that were coming into the hospital. And to me, that that's uh, that's a noble thing, and and I think that's a wonderful feeling to have, the the desire to you know get in and 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 help you know another human being, even when there is a significant risk to yourself. We shouldn't discount the risks that you know we've been exposed to in a hospital in the field throughout this pandemic. Um, so, so that's a good thing to feel, uh, but it can also be stressful if you can't put yourself in the game quickly uh, and you're sitting on the sideline. And I know you weren't sitting on the sideline. I know you were doing uh, a, a lot um, you know, on the administrative end and public health end. Um, and and Ken, the uh, the frustration of the um, you know, folks shutting down. I, I vividly remember when Dr. Fauci was kind of getting mistreated, if you will, by a, a lot of our politicians. And, you know, I, I trained at the NIH. I had the privilege of when I was rounding in the ICU, um, you know, when when he had patients that were on some of these protocols, he stopped in and rounded with our team. And, you know, so I had a bit of a personal connection to him. Uh, I'm sure he doesn't remember me and never even took note of me. But, you know, I, I saw him in the flesh. I, I worked next to him on a few occasions when I was in my fellowship and to be in the ICU and, and see people dying and getting prone and on, you know, gallons and gallons of sedatives and analgesics and profoundly ill and uh, feeling the stress of, of being in situations where these patients were dying and I couldn't even let their family members visit. Uh, and then coming home and seeing some of our politicians discount science and intellectualism and come down on a, a pretty normal, a smart doctor like Dr. Fauci, it was. I uh, remember getting angry, it got really, really angry. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I, I'm an independent. I don't, I don't sit on either party. Uh, I, I kind of listen to, you know, voices of reason and try to make my own decisions. But you know, being being a healthcare clinician and 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 seeing the, um, you know, identifying with another physician and seeing a, a sound, reasonable physician get kind of pushed to the sideline over politics and, and seeing the, firsthand the, the way this disease affects people and families uh, really, really made me angry. And, um, you know, it's again, it goes back to the inability to connect. Even now, I kind of measure how much time I spent watching the news and on social media, like you were saying, was I just, um, I have to free up some real estate in my brain yeah. to continue doing what I'm doing because it's still here.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's Absolutely. uh so it's uh I it's interesting you brought Fauci up cuz um I I remember one of the uh, statuses I made I made it very angrily on Facebook and it was uh you know I uh, in, I think there was a hashtag going around and Fauci I trust, right? Um and uh, I said with that I I trust in the in the in the construct that is evidence-based medicine. Right, and the the countless souls that have come and dedicated their lives through medicine, whether it's you know everyone from you know technicians, nursing level technicians to pre-hospital, you know and you know physicians, nurses, respiratory technicians, everyone, uh, you know the the collective medicine, uh, the collective construct that you know the amount of hours all of us put in, I trust that construct, and I trusted that construct to get us through no matter what. Uh, you know what public health whatever disease faced you know not only this country but us as a people right, and to see people just uh you know folks that uh for lack of a better term had no idea what they were talking about, right they had no idea of what they didn't know that they didn't know regarding medicine uh were you know bashing a guy that I equated to folks that I look up to right when i you know I aspire to what i want to be you know how i want to you know approach medicine. That was really frustrating, and then uh, on top of that, seeing you know it was it was compounding, right? It was compounding, and um, yeah, it's uh, it, so I I, I want to bring up another thing. Uh, the the most frustrating part of all this for me, one of the most frustrating, but definitely top tier, was when I saw paramedics buying into the anti-intellectualism. That for me was like uh, unexcusable. Uh, inexcusable. Um, and I, and these were literally people that I knew that I was, you know, putting hours into guidance that then other physician, you know, not other, but like, you know, then physicians above me were clearing and writing and editing and everyone from across an entire state's public health infrastructure was putting input into, and then we were sending it out to clinicians who then were dismissing the validity of this disease. And, uh, that was a question that I wanted to bring up or comment. I'm like, how do we reach those folks? And to a point, what can we do better so that, you know, that attitude is not as pervasive as it is currently?
2: Wow, well, that's a difficult question because yeah. I got to tell you, it's not just paramedics. I, I, I have uh, uh, a physician friends that are um, uh, equal, equally dismissive of some of the science, even though they're working. You know, in different realms of the hospital, maybe not the ICU next to me, but in anesthesia and, and, and you know, radiology that uh, have also been at times dismissive of evidence and, and best practice and, and evolution of, of what we know about this disease. Um, it's, a, it's a hard question. How, how do we bring those people back into... The fold of reason, of science. Um,
1: So I, I, and Ken, if you have a comment, I don't want to cut you off, but I I actually, I've actually thought about this a lot, if you guys can't tell. Um, So I believe that the solution to that is being better on the front end, right? Uh, What do we not do well in EMS education right now, at least from my experience, We do not tell people, we don't teach folks how we came to the conclusions we have when you all as physicians or, you know, administrators in medicine and pre-hospital medicine come to the decisions that are the protocol, right? No one really explains how research works. A true approach to uh, research methods, statistics, uh, what evidence-based medicine is, how to... One of the uh, you know one of the other examples is how to uh, digest research, which I know is one of our goals here uh, to eventually get into um, the and that's something that at the program that Ken and I teach at we we want to uh, kind of weave into the program um, how to identify and at least at a at a beginner's level digest information as you get it right.
0: Uh, so I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on that. I I cut out there on the last thing you said, Moose, but. Um, I think the, the reality is that it's it's not a paramedic problem or a healthcare clinician problem. It's a people problem because you're just going to have people who are going to be like that. I know people who are highly educated scientists, healthcare professional type people who really believe some wacky stuff um, about this and about you know other things and for all the wacky things I'm into, some of them make me seem pretty sane. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, it's just, uh, unfortunately, I think it's just a reality. That, and I think we've always had a lot of people that uh, kind of feel that way. But I think what the difference is now we have social media. And now I can hop online and tell 900 of my closest friends what I think. And I can, one of them can share something that. Um, you know, maybe fits my agenda and says that, you know, this particular research is wrong. And, you know, if I feel the situation is, you know, if people feel the situation isn't being handled correctly, but I like the people who are handling the situation, whether or not it's not, it's being handled correctly. Well, I'm going to find a way to refute that because it's tribalism, you know, it's, these are my people, and, uh, I, you know, people are going to find a way to support whatever they hold dearest. So if, if people hold certain values in, in more importance than, you know, scientific fact-based reasoning, then that's what people are going to do. Um, I think you can kind of blunt that with some upfront information and explanation and research, but there's always going to be some segment of the population that's going to be opposed to whatever one other person says for whatever reason. You know, it could be me saying the sky is blue. There's I guarantee you, if you went out into the earth, out of the eight billion people out there, you could probably find a handful that are gonna tell you the sky's not really blue. You know? I mean it's it's just always gonna be like that. And I don't know that there is a fix for it. That in the failing public edu- failing public education system.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I, this is a this is a really hard question, and um, it's difficult for me to like synthesize a really good answer for you off the top of my head. But I think that incorporation of some of the things you mentioned into paramedic education, uh, how to read a, a scientific paper, how to sort out the crap from the meaningful, how to. Uh, understand a paper, understanding terms like number needed to treat, um, understanding just simply what a peer-reviewed article is for a case report. Um, You know, I I don't see that right now in in a lot of paramedic programs. I think it can only help uh, create a generation of paramedics that are are better able to think critically, uh, both in the classroom and after they graduate. Um, I don't know why, but I also keep cycling back to, um, you know, something that I posted on my social media a while ago about the need to transition from uh, transitional medical, uh, traditional medical education to cognitive-based medical education where, you know, instead of spoon-feeding content, and this is how you do it, and this is the med you give, that um, we focus more on problem-based learning, um, knowledge application, uh, you know, the teacher and student learning together um, have, you know, uh, um, uh, kind of variable length education that, you know, one size doesn't fit all for every learner. There may be a person like you, Moose, that I know you're a paramedic already, but if you came into a paramedic program, you know, kind of where you're at, you may have a lot of that foundation already, and you just really need to focus on clinical skills. You, you know how to uh, read a paper critically, you know how to think critically, uh, but there may be a student that takes longer. So. Um, Man, I'm all over the place with this one, but um, I think the the day of the days of spoon feeding protocols and medications and dosages and linear algorithms, HA style algorithms to pre-hospital students on every level basic, intermediate and advanced needs to go away and be replaced with more adult style learning, which should include the ability to read a scientific paper. There are plenty of peer-reviewed articles and journals that are now focused on our world in the pre-hospital realm, pre-hospital emergency care, annals of emergency medicine, uh, and even even some of the trade uh, journals like GEMS and EMS World are are offering a lot of good educational content that's referenced and and, uh, often peer-reviewed. Um, So, I I think it can only help the situation, but unfortunately I do agree with Ken as well that there can be a lot of folks that are just kind of fixed in their ways and, um, you know, sometimes it it takes a bad experience with them getting sick or family member getting sick where they kind of will maybe turn to uh, the evidence rather than simply uh, what they've been reading on social media.
1: Yeah, no, it's. Uh, it, uh, uh, I would like to make a note that I did not include that question in the show notes, so I truly uh, blindsided both of you. Uh, so thanks for <laughs> answer, uh, candidly, answering both of those, uh, both of, from both of you guys. Um, so listen, I do want to end on a positive note and just uh, chat a little bit with our listeners about what we're uh, planning on uh, next. Um, so we definitely will be discussing, uh, uh on an episode, uh, and this is completely different from COVID. The goal kind of for us here at alert medic one is to never really, uh, only talk about COVID again, because I know all of you are exhausted about COVID and the rest of medicine didn't stop gunshot wounds and trauma patients and, uh, six COPD years didn't stop. Right. Uh, so we want to continue to provide that education and continue to bring, uh, experts on the show, um, that provide uh, a unique background uh, on what we do every day um, we are definitely going to be yeah yeah go ahead, go okay,
2: ahead. you know it's interesting how uh, on your outro here yeah how I, I actually had a question for Ken and oh it yeah actually go, totally ahead, go ahead what you're just talking about and I, Ken, I, I'm curious if I say the words anchoring bias to you in in the in the world of covid that we now live in um, was every patient that your paramedics that you supervise that you, that they picked up with hypoxemia pui or did some of them actually still have pneumonia copd um, heart failure a pe um, you know or, or did everybody have COVID all of a sudden and was everybody a pui and, and that was actually sorry to sneak that in that was a, one of the last things on my list of things for today is uh, the the need to recognize how strongly a lot of us have become anchored in everything that's hypoxemia is potentially COVID, whereas guess what, kids? All those other diseases, they're still
0: there. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So the answer is yes. So both. So by our uh, regulations, So by our regulations and our our rules... You can just uh, say clinical guidance
1: sent by your agency because I I, I won't take it personally.
0: There you go. (laughs) By by the clinical guidance we were sent, um, most of those patients were PUIs. However... um, the vast majority of our paramedics, I think did a very good job of still treating the underlying issues. And there were times that got very difficult because especially early on in this, you know, we were told, Oh, you know, you can't give nebs to anybody. You can't put anybody on CPAP stuff, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, And I think as we kind of worked through that and our understanding of the, the transmission and the safety of, some of these procedures or the not safety of, of them, um, that helped. Um, but no, I think um, we still did a very good job of looking at each indi- each patient individually and treating whatever we thought was going on with them. Were, did we call the hospital and say, hey, we have a PUI? Yes, absolutely. All, almost every one of those patients that you described, probably yes. But that doesn't mean they weren't being treated. Sorry, I just glitched there. So, but we were still treating them for what we thought was wrong with them.
1: Real quick, I just want to uh, respond to that. The um, it, it's interesting you bring that up uh, in terms of like you know identifying patients under investigation and you know um, you know were uh, so the so the clinical decision making of individual paramedics and the role that anchoring bias has to it, but also. Um, uh, elucidating, identifying the role of EMS in the in the the larger medical construct of is our role uh, being the wide siphon, right? And identifying anyone p- that could potentially be a PUI, uh, and then letting the hospital figure it out. Or as this disease evolves, are we going to be doing more point of care identification and stratifying patients at the at the bedside in someone's house? And is there a role for that? Because that that's something that I've been uh, um, uh, interested in. And more and how much more care can we safely provide at the patient's home at the point of nine one one activation, or uh, you know, uh, you know, Allied Health activation if you know uh, nurses going to people's houses and so on and so forth, home care. Um, and where do uh, unique uh, protocols that allow EMS to triage? patients not to an ER, uh, but to other, uh, sources of healthcare, um, or allowing them to stay home, which uh, I believe Maryland was one of the first, uh, Maryland, uh, states to allow for a viral pandemic triage protocol to allow to treat, you know, uh, EMS to triage patients to home. Um, where does, uh, wh- where, how do, do all of those different factors go into, um, that individual's clinician, uh, individual clinician's decision-making and how uh, anchoring bias uh, feeds into that. I think that's an interesting topic to discuss for another show.
2: I was just thinking about a, a, a quote that I saw, Dr. David Tan, who is either the current or past president of the National Association of EMS Physicians, uh, that he made uh, at some point in recent history. And he said, you know, EMS doesn't bring patients to health care. EMS is healthcare." And um, the idea of uh, point of care testing and expanded scope practice has never been more real than now with uh, both, you know, preventing a, a patient who's potentially well enough to stay home from coming into the microbiologic uh, milieu of a hospital in, in the midst of a pandemic, uh, and then also you know, limiting the influx of patients and preserving scarce resources. So, um, I Again, I am grateful for being part of this podcast because I think what we speak to is the need to uh, elevate the level of EMS education to more fully allow EMS as a whole to be thought of as an integral part of the healthcare system and not just a means of delivering a patient from the pre-hospital realm to the hospital. So I'm grateful to, to hook back up with you guys to get this podcast going again. Uh, for everything that the both of you have done through this, for the patients you've taken care of, for most of your desire to jump back in, um, but like keep things going on the public health perspective and uh, for Ken, I, you know, for working uh, and, and knowing the dangers of working and coming home to your family like I did. So thank you both for what you do and, and for um, getting back in it today with this uh, conversation, it was great
1: um and real quick i do want to hey dr vipberg i know listen with all your uh with all of your um uh different commitments and you know responsibilities for you to come back on this show and you know help us through the you know uh, medical leadership uh medical director leadership it uh, it's uh, uh truly an honor to work with you thank you for you know all the work that you put in um and uh Listen, as we to our listeners, thank you guys for you know bearing with us as we took this gap, uh, as we all responded to COVID in a different way. Uh, as Ken, you know, he already plugged it, great. Please uh, continue to follow us on social media. Any ideas, any unique perspectives, please uh, shoot us an email, admin, admin at alertmedic1.com. Uh, thank you so much for listening to us today. Um, that's all for now. Thanks. You've been listening to the Alert
0: Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner.